Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's great to have you all here today. Um, the profile of my guest today sends shivers down the spine of all of us who are involved in advising and managing investments for clients. She's a lawyer with significant experience in acting for and against financial advisors in um, financial ombudsman um, complaints and, and cases. Let me just give you a flavor of some of the cases she's dealt with recently. 30 million pound group claim against accountant for negligent advice um, um, on, on film schemes. Um, and of course, 1.2 million claim against a financial advisor for negligent uh, pension transfer advice. Um, I'm talking about none other than Philippa Han, who is a partner and managing director of Clark Wilmont. Philippa, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you. You are the lady who put the fear of God <laughs> in, in all of us, financial uh, you know, people in, involved in, in, in financial services, advising clients, and uh, you know, managing investments for clients. So uh, for anyone who's been living under the rock for a while and don't know who you are, do you want to give up, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the journey um, that, that your career has taken so far? Okay, so I specialise, as you said, in financial services litigation. Uh, I've been doing that for the best part of 20 years now. I am a dual qualified lawyer and I've taken my um, diploma in regulated financial planning. In fact, I've taken it twice. I saw I that. I saw that. And I'm thinking she's, she's taking our professional qualifications to use it against us. <laughs> no, it's just, if you're going to do something, you've got to be curious about it, haven't you? You've got to understand what it is that you're doing and you've got to understand what it is that you are advising people on and when I'm talking to people like you who have all that experience who have all the qualifications who know what they're talking about I want to make damn sure that I know what I'm talking about too so um, my career has really followed the scandals that the financial services industry has been through over the years. So I started um, in financial services litigation. Prior to that, I was doing more general commercial litigation. But I moved to Clark Wilmot in 2006 and uh, caught really the tail end of the first pensions review and was looking at you know, drawdown, looking at traded endowment policies, and then followed all the scandals through. Of course, there was the banking crisis. We had the AIG Premier Access Bonds and all of the litigation that came out of the banking crisis. Um, when I moved into film schemes, as you said, uh, there were lots and lots of problems with uh, film schemes and finally becoming full circle back to DB pension transfers. It's, it's almost as if we learned nothing from the last pension mm -hmm. review. So that's, that's a potted history of what I've been involved in. But you know, in amongst that were claims in relation to equitable life. Um, and uh, one of my most favorite claims was in relation to a Ponzi scheme that was being run 
up in Edinburgh and we were able to recover large sums of money from a US forex company um, where the fraudster was repeatedly um, thinking that he had some sort of magical touch in, in relation to Forex and he would make it all back. And of course he didn't. Um, but the Forex company didn't bother doing their AML properly. So we were able to get them on, on the anti-money laundering issues. But it's been, it's been a journey. Wow. Incredible. So, so you, you really came up on my radar during the, uh, you know, British steel pension scandal. Give us a little bit of an insight into your, your involvement with that case. So that started back in uh, 2018. We had just finished uh, the £30 million case against the firm of accountants in relation to negligent um, film scheme advice. And uh, I actually got that uh, notified of that work over Twitter of all places. Right. Uh, a place where we both hang out. Eh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and Al Rush was uh, was asking for a for a good lawyer, uh, and a few people kindly put my name forward, and I, I met with him. And often in in my previous experience, it will be one group of people who have. Uh, suffered some form of problem. Um, so, for example, my Ponzi people, um, they'd lost a collective £45 million. There were 451 of them, but they were all in one place and there was one defendant. So when I first got involved, it was literally in relation to active wealth, which I think was the sort of poster boy of, yeah. of the BSPS problems when that first happened. And I remember going to Port Talbot and meeting I think probably 30 steel workers in in a pub uh, in Margam uh, and at that time we thought it was just one problem but uh, over the last sort of three or four years what we've discovered is that every rock that we've turned over in relation to British Steel there has been terrible things underneath it um, and I suppose one thing that I've learned is that human behavior in and around uh, financial decisions is is incredibly interesting and you can almost predict how people are are likely to behave given the right environment so off the back of that have done um, just because I think it's interesting a bit of work with various compliance firms around culture um, I've also been banging the door with the FCA about the bad behavior that we've seen and, and it's been incredibly frustrating I mean in some cases they've done really great work but we're four years down the line and a lot of the problems are still there and whilst there were significant issues during that advice process and of course we had the perfect storm we had the perfect storm of 42,000 active members of that db scheme being forced into making a decision within a very short period they had three months to make that decision between september 2017 and december 2017 so there was an influx of people needing specialist pension transfer advice within a short period of time, not enough people around to, to give them that advice. And do I think that those advisors woke up one morning with a sort of Machiavellian laugh thinking I'm going to do something bad today? No, I don't. I really don't think that that's what happened. But I think that the, the environment, the culture, 
the circumstances in which they found themselves lent itself absolutely to this scandal and have we got enough in place to prevent that happening again no i don't think we do i think there are issues with the ability of the sea to actually take robust steps so for example um they were notified um al rush notified them relatively early on and they went down to port talbot and they did seminars they sent out guidance um and they were talking to the financial advisors down there who were involved in in this big project um about what they would expect and what they didn't expect and in some cases as you will know they uh, those firms some of those firms voluntarily gave up permissions i think there were nine firms who did in that in that very first period um six of those firms are now in some form of insolvency event so they're either in liquidation or they're in administration no steps were taken to preserve their pi insurance now they will have had at least 1.85 million pounds worth of pi insurance each come the end of their uh, insurance year their insurer of course excluded liability for DB transfers or specifically BSBS transfers. And we lost millions of pounds worth of cover there. And that still remains a problem. Um, so there are, there are issues around um, PI insurance, because I've been quite vocal about that and remain vocal about that. There are issues with the FCA not being able to move swiftly enough, with the FCA not having adequate powers. Um, and, and with the failure of the government, of the FCA, of, of the TPR, to really think about the effect of, 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 of a mass decision-making process on the part of people who were generally financially unsophisticated. I mean, who really is financially sophisticated enough to decide whether they should transfer out of a final salary pension or not? And you even need specific additional exams to do it as a qualified advisor. Mm. Um, and of course, the potential for people to really want to make a lot of money out of it this was a real opportunity for some of those advisors um you know south wales is has some of the most deprived areas in in britain and so there are not a lot of millionaires that you can act for in south wales and so taking the fee on the transfer the real uh, draw to this and i think the real problem in in people wanting to, to take on this work was A, such a lot of it, mm. uh, and B, increasing their funds under management. And suddenly they're increasing their funds under management by three, 400,000 pounds per client. They're charging their half to 1%. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. You can see why people wanted to get involved in it. And, and it's that incremental, uh, I just need to get this off my desk. Let's just get it through. They all want to transfer. Let's just get it through and not taking a step back and saying is this actually the right thing to do so a plethora of problems and the problems continue i mean the fca came out yesterday to talk about re-reviewing their pension um db transfer uh, compensation guidance and there is a reason that they specifically said in that press release that you are not to cancel your charges the day before you calculate what compensation should be due. There's a reason they put all of those things in there because the bad behavior continues. Mm. And what I've learned from it is 
this stuff doesn't stop it just changes mm -hmm. it's fascinating and th there is just a lot to unpack from this so please forgive me um so i want to go back a little bit so when you say there is something about you said the problem was the culture maybe it's just my tiny little brain right i can't fathom this what is it about the culture is it the culture of following rules or not following rules is it the culture of you know seeking to make the most out of every i, I don't what is it about the culture that is actually problematic so I, uh, my theory, and it can only be a theory, is that if you have a culture within your firm where you slap someone on the back for certain behavior, right, right, yeah. you will see that behavior repeated. Mm. So um, I wonder whether the advisors who were getting five, six, seven clients through the door in a day who were turning this around, objectively perhaps doing a good job in you know seeing all the clients getting them signed up sending out the suitability report being slapped on the back and congratulated for that sort of status type behavior mm -hmm. what rather than the relationship type behavior it's it's really hard i think to stand back and say to your advisors do you know just wish you'd well. stop making money <laughs> Please, please stop making money. That's terrible. You know, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, and you want to, you want, you know, there's that scarcity principle because if you don't know it, somebody else down the road is going to do it. So you may as well. So I think there is a thing around that, that status behavior versus the relationship behavior. And it's quite different. We all sort of sit, we can sit here in judgment and say, I wouldn't have done that. That's a terrible thing to do. But actually in the moment, would you? I think it's really hard. And that's why having um, a, a, a purpose around what it is that you do and really talking about that purpose. And it's really hard to keep a, a handle on it because it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, you know, it's quite amorphous. Um, so I, I think that, I don't think we can sit here and point the finger and say those are bad people. I think we have to look at ourselves and say there but for the grace of God, and actually, in those circumstances, if you do a pre-mortem, say we were in that position, what is it that we will have done wrong? Right? We hadn't, we hadn't kept an eye on, well, how many people are we transferring out? Because mm. my, uh, my knowledge is that actually it should probably only be about 10% of people. So if we're transferring out every single person, we need to really look at that and make sure that we're doing the right thing. Are our remuneration processes right? Um, are, you know, let's have it. Let's just take a step back and look at this in the cold light of day, as opposed to, I've got 25 people who want an appointment with me, and I'm not even joking. In some cases, there were five steel workers waiting out in the in the waiting room. I mean, which financial advisors have people waiting in their waiting room yeah. to talk to them? This was a very strange environment. Um, so I think we all have to say, do you know what? This could have been us. So how do we make sure that if if there is another circumstance which is similar or anything that we're doing at the moment, that it is not us? How do we make sure that that happens? Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Hitting Jones is the managing director and the chief investment officer at 
Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about why Betafolio is different than other model portfolio solutions out there on the market? Well, I think as a startup, we're very lucky because we're, we've got a blank, we've had a blank sheet of paper and we're starting from scratch. Um, so we've got no legacies to deal with. Um, the key difference with us is, uh, is that we really aim to partner with advisors with the end client's outcomes as the core goal for all of us. Um, and we want to provide everything that the advisor needs to run their investment proposition. So we give them regulatory support. We can help with platform due diligence as well as fund due diligence and the usual investment pieces. We've got our sister company, Timeline, which allows us to really support advisors with their retirement planning and we can produce CRPs. For example, I'm working with a client at the moment to bespoke a decumulation strategy for them and work a way of managing that within our discretionary um, service for them. So we can touch on every, every element connected to investment that the advisor needs. We have a really different approach to rebalancing from many of the model portfolio services out there. We're, we're supporting our clients to move away from calendar-based rebalancing. We've done a lot of research into tolerance-based rebalancing, which we know provides superior returns, but we're actually developing the processes to enable that to happen um, and make it easier for advisors, actually. Um, another key part of our full service is the client communications that we provide. So advisors will have a bank of sales aids, thought pieces, regular commentary, as well as the usual quarterly reports and performance reports that you would expect a, an MPS to provide. So I think that to sum it up, the difference is that we're, we're designing something that meets every need that an advisor may have for offering an investment proposition to retail clients. Thank you very much, Nikki. I'll come back to the issue with the PI later on as part of a conversation I wanted to have with you about PI, because apparently, um, you know, PI stuff is, you know, is, a, is, a, is an obsession of yours and, you know, makes a good bedtime reading for you actually <laughs> no I'm joking all right okay so so but let's come back to these these poor people and what was done to them have they been you know adequately compensated through the 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 um you know through i assume the ombudsman or the the fscs no um, so it's difficult to, to keep PI out of it entirely. No, I'll, yeah, I'll come back to PI, but if, if, if it's part of the problem, yeah, sure. But, but, it, but that is part of the compensation problem. So um, if, uh, if you are a financial advisor who's had insurance for the work that you're doing at the time you're doing it, which these advisors had, and then in the following fin um, uh, insurance year, that is excluded from your policy, you then have no insurance for these claims, which is terrifying. And actually not the advisor's fault at all. They had insurance at the time they were doing this, but um, because PI insurance is usually written on a claims made basis, that means that it is the year of insurance that you are in that the claim is received, the claim is made that responds to, um, to that claim. Right. So 
the bad stuff happened in 2017. There may be a claim in 2019. The 2019 insurance doesn't have insurance or doesn't have cover for uh, DB transfers. So um, these financial advisors are finding themselves largely without insurance because, as you know, it's been pretty difficult within the market it, to get DB pension transfer insurance. So um, when you ask about compensation, largely people are being compensated through the FSCS, which means that their compensation is capped. And so you have in some cases, it is not unusual to see the losses up in the hundreds of thousands of pounds, but of course their losses are capped at either 50,000 or 85,000, depending on when that firm went into default. So um, often uh, the clients are not being adequately compensated. There is also question marks around the, uh, the way that um, the compensation is calculated. Back in 2018, we were getting our first um, decisions through from the FSCS and they simply hadn't included um, advisor charges going forward. So we, we called them to Parliament with the, with the use of some MPs um, and they did change the way that they were approaching things. We're also um, with the FOS um, facing unreal delays in getting decisions out of the FOS. It is a real problem. There have been, uh, I think, two final decisions from the FOS. Um, one of the decisions that we've been involved in is where the advisor cancelled their charges. Uh, and we had to go back to the FOS to say it is not fair for um, the advisor to cancel their charges, which will automatically reduce the, the compensation which is being paid to the clients. Um, and the, the FOS agreed with us. So there are various problems with the, with the calculation. One, as I say, is the fact that most people are having to go to the FSCS and therefore receiving capped compensation. There's nowhere else for them to go. Another problem is, because most of our clients are going through the financial ombudsman service, which of course has to be in their best interest because they don't have all the difficulties and the costs and the adverse you know, risk of going through litigation. The, the way that the FOS is set up, the, uh, the advisor, the wrongdoer, will be calculating that compensation, which is fine if it is a straightforward I should have been in this fund rather than that fund because most people can do that calculation but when you are looking at such a complex calculation as a DB transfer um, compensation calculation where you are building in all sorts of assumptions guilt yields um, you know, or, or discount rates all of that sort of thing it is beyond the ability of almost all complainants to check those calculations and in circumstances where the FOS, the FCA, the FSCS are and I totally understand why going out to people to say you don't need legal representation actually the only reason that any of this stuff is coming to light is because Al and Clark Wilmot are raising these issues at, at Westminster with the FCA, with all the government agencies. And so I, I, I get that I'm sat here as a lawyer acting for these people saying people need representation, but people need representation. Um, I don't, it, I suppose the equivalent would be, yes, people could invest their own money, but are they likely to have a better outcome by using a financial advisor? Yes, they are. 
um, do you need to warn them about the pitfalls of whatever it is that they're proposing to do? Yes, you do. And it's, and it's the same with legal representation in relation to these. And so it's, it is quite frustrating at the moment because um, there are significant issues in people pursuing their own claims, particularly where halfway through the advisor goes into liquidation, mm. which is very difficult for, uh, for somebody to, to pursue all the way through. So, again, forgive me, because I'm just trying to process this in terms of, just in terms of the basis for, for this calculation, you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, say someone was entitled to, I don't know, say 20,000 pounds a year in pension for the rest of their lives, and, and there's some protection or guarantee from the government, even if the, if the scheme goes under, and they transfer that money that turns out to be 600,000 into some sort of um, investments. Now, to the extent that this is a legitimate investment, so in other words, you know, mutual funds, nothing, um, you know, silly. The market's done incredibly well, you know, over the last couple of years. So they still have their pension fund, right? And so you are, if this case goes to the ombudsman and, and the ombudsman say, well, you shouldn't have done the transfers in the first place, then the principle is to put the clients back into the position they would have been if the advice or the event hasn't occurred. So I'm assuming that you're going to say, well, you know, assuming you bought an annuity today at the point of comp compensation, how much money would you need to buy the annuity to give you the guaranteed income that your pension would have given you? And then to say, well, what is the difference between that amount and the amount that you have in your SIP uh, currently. Have I got this completely wrong? I have, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just slightly more complicated than that. Because, of course, these people are perhaps 26, 42, 53. They're yeah. not 65. Um, oh, God. 26 years or getting transferred out of... Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, not that unusual. So you've got this whole period of time between where... So they can't... What the compensation aims to do is exactly that, put them back in the position they ought to have been had they've been properly advised. But they, the, it seeks to compensate them now for something that they would get in 10, 20, 30, 40 yeah. years. So yeah. you need to add into that questions about discount rates. You also have to add in their own personal circumstances. So are they married? How old is their spouse? Um, you also need to add into that people who... So we have uh, clients who, by definition, uh, don't have a financial advisor because their advisor has fallen into insolvency. They're very scared. They now have lost confidence. They then go to the FSES. But, of course, they've been sold the transfer on the basis of flexibility. Um, they, if they're old enough, can then access their pot. They've gone into drawdown. They've taken a bit out because they need to help their, their children through university. How do, you, how do you add that into the whole calculation? And actually, is that the position they would have been in had they been properly advised? No, because they couldn't keep working and draw their pension. They had to make a decision between the two. Would they have retired at 55? Probably not. Um, so, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, perhaps they are not married now, but will they be married when they're 65? So their circumstances might change. Um, what, what fund, I mean, it, 
the the question mark around discount rates is a really interesting one so you look at the discount rate which is uh, in place in relation to this specific calculation the discount rate for set out in the fca guidance is very different to the discount rate which is used by the fses for their own pension so it's you know there's a there's a lot going on and trying to put somebody back in you know putting all that back in the box and trying to put them back in the position they ought to have been in sounds really simple but it's really, really not. And there are huge amounts of pitfalls. Yeah, I know the answer to it. It's impossible is the answer. Uh, you know, so, right, let, let's, so I want to come back to this issue around PI, right? Mm -hmm. And we hear a lot of, um, you know, a lot of complaints from advisors about cost of PI, about how inadequate it is. Just some the problem that we have today with PI insurance for, for financial advisors? So in my view, uh, the problem for PI uh, in, for financial advisors is that the FCA's requirements um, for basic insurance is woefully inadequate. So if you compare the requirements uh, that the FCA has for financial advisors against the requirements that the solicitors regulatory authority, the SRA has for solicitors, I know, of course, I am one. They are very, very different. And um, the knock-on effect is that, so solicitors have the SRA compensation scheme, same as you have the FSCS. And when you compare the amounts of money which is paid out from both schemes, <laughs> it is it's fairly shocking. So uh, I believe it was 1718, the FSCS paid out about 470 odd million. I think last year it was up over 500 million. The uh, SRA compensation scheme during the same period paid out around 11 million pounds. Because solicitor's insurance is um, more comprehensive. So we're in a situation where in this particular, as I explained earlier, you've got these financial advisors who had insurance at the time, claims made policies. By the time the claims are coming in, they no longer have that cover. So as a solicitor, I cannot be without cover for any past business. It's, the SRA simply won't allow it. And so there is no market for that because there's no point in me getting that because I couldn't keep my practicing certificate if I didn't have that cover. The FCA has not afforded the same protections to financial advisors. So they write into their rules that financial advisors can have exclusions, which is not in the uh, financial advisor's best interest, and it's certainly not in the client's best interests. And that it, where they have a, an exclusion, they have to have some additional capital adequacy. Now, that capital adequacy is woeful. Um, if you look at the table um, within the FCA's handbook, if you have an exclusion and they do not identify what that exclusion might be, and I think we could probably agree that having the exclusion in relation to DB transfers where the potential losses can be catastrophic, that isn't the same as having an exclusion in relation to advice in relation to which I see you choose. Um, so um, the capital adequacy, the additional capital that you need to hold if you have exclusions, doesn't matter how many times you've given that advice, you know, it's not in within any context at all. It is simply, I think for a firm turning over about half a million, the capital adequacy is about £35,000, mm. which is a drop in the ocean. So you then have um, 
advisors who uh, don't have insurance, they then fall to the FSCS, the FSCS pays out, the FSCS then comes out to the rest of the industry and says, uh, can we have some more money please because we're running out of funds in the pot. So it's a huge problem and you also have a problem then with um, the consumers who are not being adequately protected because as I said, quite often um, these losses are catastrophic and even the increased amount of 85,000 isn't going to cover the 400,000, 500,000 over a million pound losses that, that these clients have, have suffered. So um, in circumstances where insurers can simply exclude liability, there is no, there's no um, reason for them to improve standards. So for, for solicitors, we have additional kite marks that uh, mean that we can uh, access cheaper insurance because there is an auditing process, which is not done by the SRA. It is done by a separate company. Um, with the, which the law society is involved with. And I think there is a place for the basic requirement for insurance to be improved. I know it's painful. Solicitors generally pay more for their PI premiums than financial advisors do, but we pay a heck of a lot less in relation to our levies. And I would much rather control the amount that I was paying to an insurer and know that I was insured and I wasn't at risk going forward than I would having an uncontrollable amount coming to me from the SRA in respect of my levies. So I think that there is an interconnection between um, requiring the basic standards of, uh, of insurance to improve. Um, so that some of the other problems uh, in relation to that, when you compare the two professions, so the minimum, stand, uh, the minimum amount of insurance for a financial advisor is 1.85 million in aggregate, which means if you have 10 claims in that year, you still only have a pot of 1.85 million. For a solicitor, it's 3 million per claim. So if I have 10 claims, it's 30 million. Um, so it, the pot then completely changes. I cannot have any restrictions on the amount of my defense costs. So there can't be a situation where I can't afford to get another solicitor in to, to defend me. Um, uh, and my insurance can't be cancelled. Yeah, so they, it, it's incredible. And I really, I am really grateful for your depth of knowledge in this area. And I, I have to say, I am, I am amazed by how you compare the the solicitors, uh, you know, insurance with with the with the financial advisors. Because I, I I've always thought, you know, if we want to be treated like a profession that we are, then we need to, you know, to be looking at what's going on with with other more established professions like like lawyers and and doctors. So 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 here's my thinking. I'm thinking, well, yes, you know, the 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 regulator, you know prescribes you know as they always do the lowest you know common denominator right just the bare, bare minimum but why don't advisors themselves you know get more comprehensive cover i assume you know because partly because then the market is not there insurers aren't um you know queuing up offering you know a more impressive insurance uh, yeah, cover that will cover all the all the previous um, um, you know pre previous advice that, that you is that the problem is, is this a chicken and egg situation where 
the market for more comprehensive insurance for financial advisor is, is really not there or it's very expensive or too, just incredibly expensive um, because, well, it's not required by, by, by the regulator and, and most people don't want it or seek it out. Um, so I know, um, I know one financial advisor uh, who has gone to seek out um, a greater um, level of indemnity uh, and uses that um, when talking to clients to say, this is how we are different. Actually, we've gone to get more insurance. We don't think we're going to need it, but we've got it just in case. Uh, that's, that's one uh, advisor um, that I know. Um, I think one of the problems is that even if you go and get a, a greater level of indemnity insurance, um, so you might not go for the 1.85 million, you may go for 3 million. That still doesn't prohibit your uh, PI insurer from implementing exclusions mm. in the following um, insurance yeah, yeah, year. Yeah. Right, right. So it doesn't take away their ability to to behave in a way which is in the insurer's best interest and which yeah. they're enabled to do under the terms of the regulations and under the terms of their contract. So it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. The only thing in, in, in my head that will solve the problem is the SRA. Now, the SRA are worried about capacity in the market. Yeah. I think there is... If, if this happens, that obviously has to be a difficult period. But post that difficult period, we then have the insurers engaged in increasing um, the quality of, of uh, the advice. We have fewer rogues in the industry because, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I have a financial advisor and it's made uh, such a difference to me and my ability to sleep at night and how I feel about, you know, financial freedom is something that everybody should be able to access. So I truly believe in financial advice and I think it is a really good, good thing. I just think that you are crucified repeatedly by the things that I have followed along in my career and the problems that have been a perennial thorn in the side of advisors. And there are lots and lots of very good advisors. So I am passionate about creating an environment where I am out of a job because for <laughs> me, what, what greater legacy could I leave than, than in increasing that? So Philippa, you're a regulator for a day, right? For today what are the three most important and most urgent actions that you're going to take to fix the problems that we have um, as financial advisors? That is possibly the best question that I've ever been asked. <laughs> ah, I'd <been> like that. <laughs> All right. Well, number one is very obvious. Number one is um, I would, uh, I would, because uh, obviously I have to consult on changing the rules. So I go out and consult and I would look to change the rules on the basic level of uh, PI insurance. That would be an absolute must. I would also be looking to engage with the Treasury to increase the powers that I have as the regulator to act quickly to lower the bar for me to be able to uh, remove rogues from the industry. 
and I would also uh, increase my um, my my well, we we would all call it client listening, but. To my knowledge, the intelligence that the FCA um, receives is not triaged in any way. So if it's me, who is a financial services solicitor, and this is what I do, or you, um, as somebody who, you know, is in, in incredibly influential in, in the profession, and, you know, you have, um, uh, you know, you, you clearly have a lot of um, intelligence and ideas and knowledge about what's going on, the information that we give the FCA is not treated any differently to... Uh, a drunk person calling them and rave, ranting and raving. So I would be looking to engage in a much better way with the good advisors, um, and which would then lead into me being able to act much more quickly and um, and to engage with those insurers to ensure that actually the uh, the environment that we create is one where it's much more difficult to behave in that way, which is driven by that status driven slapping on the back. You've made loads of money. The other thing, if I can just add a 3.1, um, being a lawyer, um, is um, the bodies, so the CII and the CISI, who need to sign off on your certificate of professional standing, I would make that mean something. Because I am not aware that either of those bodies has ever refused a certificate of professional standing. It and if, as you say, yes, as, as you say, it is a, a, a profession, ought to be a profession. If you have a certificate of professional standing, that should actually mean something. Yeah. So that's what I would do. I agree. Totally. No, brilliant idea. I really like your idea about, you know, fixing the PI issue. But also, I like the point you made earlier on about things that advisors can do, right, you know, to lower their PI costs. Right. So, you know, having some sort of independent audit, um, you know, of, of their cases through the year, um, you know, maybe more qualifications, maybe some additional training, you know, and, and those are the things that I don't think um, are, are, you know, meaningfully available in the marketplace uh, today. But, you know, we must move on because, uh, you know, we, we've got limited time and I'm grateful for your time on all of this. So I just want to wrap up. Um, um, I had a question for you about DFMs and things like that, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to skip that. Um, let's uh, just talk about you personally. So this is a podcast about retirement and you mentioned earlier on that you have a financial advisor, which is, um, I'm really, oh, actually, right, before I go to that question, I'll go back, sorry, yeah. I want just to ask a more broader question about trust. How, you know, the, we can improve um, trust and our perception as a profession. You've, you've said a lot about this, but one of the things that I always think about is the fact that when you look at the F F FSCS um, claims, for instance, or FOS uh, complaints, for instance, um, the last time I looked at this, probably only about 2% or 3% of all of the complaints, you know, lodged at the FSCS 
relate to um, independent financial advisors, right? So, I, you know, it's such a small proportion, yet, you know, there's been wider scandal against, can, you know, after scandal in the industry. And what is it that on individual level, um, you know, financial or collectively financial advisors can do to improve, uh, you know, trust in, in this profession? It's interesting, isn't it? Because there will always be bad apples. There will always be media interest in that human story around Mr. Bloggs, who's lost the entirety of his pension fund, and it's a ain't it awful type thing. Mm -hmm. And the media will print um, those human interest stories. And I don't think that there is a real understanding in the general population around the difference between a bank and a proper financial advisor, which sounds terrible. Uh, so I think we need to shout more about um, the chartered thing doesn't mean very much. Mm. You know, a lot of the advisors who are caught up in this, it, the chartered thing didn't mean very much. Um, I think that the, of them are chartered. Some of them are chartered, yeah. yeah. None of them are. None of them are what used to be um, the IFP. The IFP. Yeah. So you know, proper financial planners yeah. doing proper financial planning. Yeah. I have never sued anybody. Wow. Uh, I, I really, okay. and that's where the culture thing comes back. Mm. Um, and the IFP was absolutely fantastic at everything, apart from telling people how fantastic yeah. <laughs> making noise about who, who we are and what we do yeah no that yeah mm, mm. no that that's incredible sorry I, I don't know if you had more to say on that stuff yet but you no no I, I, I think that's right yeah yeah beautiful so so let's wrap this up then how does a litigation a litigation a financial service litigator plan our own retirement Tell us a little bit. Give us an insight into your thinking around retirement. What's in your portfolio? What does it look like? How do you approach this uh, subject? Um, so I'm actually the partner of a firm I am self-employed. Um, so um, my approach to financial, um, my my retirement is to get a financial advisor uh, and uh, take the queuing up at the door to advise me. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, so uh, for me, it is low cost. For me, it's passive investments. For me, I am, you know, I'm 44 and I'm 100% equities. You're it 24, did you say? Um, uh, it is, it's, I, I've recently read The Hundred Year Life, actually, which was really interesting reading for me because my whole life I've been a lawyer. You know, I went to, I did A-levels, I went to university, I immediately then got a training contract and trained to be a lawyer and I've been a lawyer my whole life. So um, uh, the, what's interesting for me now in developing these skills, in developing these relationships and having really interesting conversations with interesting people, um, is just what opportunities there are out there to uh, to see how I can make a difference and see how I can make a difference to 
to financial services because I came into this thinking, you know, in 2006 thinking, oh, this is like an interesting litigation job. And if I'm really honest with you, I, I owe so much to to the financial advisors that I've spoken to and who've been kind enough to engage with me and talk to me because whilst you've introduced this as, as sort of the, the scariest woman in, in financial services, oh my actually, <laughs> actually um, I have had so much more out of those people who have been so kind to me to give me their time to talk to me about things that they feel really passionate about. I spoke to an advisor yesterday who gave me a call to say, look, I've seen something that really upsets me and I think there's a problem and I really want us to work together to try and solve it. So um, yes, there is my pension portfolio and obviously I put my money away and I take advice from my financial advisor and it's you know low cost, passive, 100% equities. But there's also that longevity to um, the passion I feel around just how good and how important financial services is for the economy and, and the people in, uh, who can access it in the UK as, as possible. And, and, and I want to be doing that for as long as I possibly can, because I think it is an awesome, awesome place to be. Really, really incredible, incredible stuff. So again, I want to ask you a few things. Your financial advisor is he is he CFP? Is he sort of the financial planning type? Or absolutely, or not? I'm just interested. Or, or she? Amy. Or she? Right. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, um, it is he. Um, he is CFP. Yeah. Good, good stuff. And I, you know, all of our audience on this uh, podcast, I assume, I, I hope, are singing and dancing when you said low cost, um, you know, globally diversified, diversified um, equity driven investment because, you know, I mean, for a 24-year-old like you, that's the sort of thing you need to be, you need to be invested in uh, because you have long, long time to go. And, you know, I, I hope that uh, and trust that we will continue to see the impact that you make to help our profession uh, become better and more recognized um you know for for many 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 years to come so uh philippa thank you very much for your time for your expertise and for the good work you do thank you thank you I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.